if you're a B2B business, how do you aggregate data across your customer base without violating your data rights contracts and without making your customers angry that you've used their data to help their competitors? Wait, what? Data rights? Competitors? I thought that the world of SaaS and the aggregation of data was what it was all about. Well, today we're going to take you through something you may or may not have heard of. It's called differential privacy. It's a fascinating area and it's something important for all. So stay tuned. I'm John Pryor and welcome to the Impact Podcast. We have with us Yevgeny Vallas from Georgian's Impact team. Hi, Yevgeny. Thanks for being with us today. Hey, good to be here. So why don't you tell us what you do? I lead our security first thesis, as well as uh, applied research projects like the ones we'll talk about today. So today we're going to talk about uh, what I'm going to call differential privacy 101. We'll get into how people might have heard about this a bit later, but I'd like to set the stage with you for why this is important. From your security perspective, what makes this different? All right, so the more high stakes your environments are and the more you try to automate them, the more important security is to that part of your business. It's not just specific to AI, but the way security manifests itself in AI is is very different from the way it manifests itself in networks. All right. And differential privacy? Differential privacy is really the the manifestation of security solutions in the context of process automation through AI. What what differential privacy is, is really a way to, to understand how do you use data to build intelligent systems that cannot then be used maliciously to compromise your, both your data, but also the business processes that these intelligent systems automate. All right, I think I get it. And I think it's also time for an example, please. Um, imagine that you're, you're building a predictive model for a, a marketing solution. And that model consumes transactional data from multiple mutually competitive businesses. And in the end, it produces a predictive model that allows you to input behavioral data or maybe environmental data and produce a prediction of what would be a good marketing strategy. If that model was attacked, the threat model here is that if that model remembers a lot of what it has seen while it was being trained and and the model gets attacked, then you may potentially leak a lot of information just by normal use of these predictive models. And so that's what we're trying to prevent here. Wow. Okay, that could be scary. Uh, Do me a favor, please. Let's recap what's different in this new world and really what it is that we're protecting against. Yeah, I would say there are two main changes. Um, One is that there is this possibility to aggregate data from multiple sources, whether it's customers, individuals, or, or business partners, and create very powerful predictive models based on that, which was not really something that was commonly done before. The second part uh, that's that's new and is is attached to that first part is that machine learning models that we build on this aggregate data are themselves a potential entry point into your system and and they constitute a threat vector. So... There's a new thing now within your business that can be attacked, 
And that's the machine learning model that's trained on the aggregate data that you have. Okay, we're talking about something I understand a bit of it, which is data. And you're also talking about the machine learning models that have been built against that data. Uh, can you contrast the two? You know, the simplest way that everyone is familiar with is somebody hacks into your AWS account or into your on-prem host hosted servers and, and gains access to your database that retrieves the data. A more sophisticated type of attack might be when somebody queries your products through the internet and through bugs in your software manages to get your software to essentially retrieve data records and reveal them to the attacker. And you know, there's an example of that happening to AT&T a couple of years ago where somebody figured out a URL they could type in the browser and get a list of uh, email addresses of, of some subset of AT&T's clients. The new type of attack that we're talking about here is where your product produces predictions and insights for your customers based on learning, specifically machine learning, that has been done on the data that you've collected. And you know, attacking that is similar to tricking a person to reveal something that they know they shouldn't be telling you, right? So imagine that somebody asks you to keep a secret and then I indirectly you know, get you to divulge that secret uh, unintentionally. That would be the kind of the human version of that type of attack. So there are many aspects to this from a traditional security infrastructure, encryption, et cetera. So what was the driving factor that was taking you down this path of differential privacy? I would say that the thing that really matters here is the whole data rights story that comes with, with differential privacy and machine learning. And, and this is really how, how we started on this path as well. Right? So the question that specifically we want to answer uh, with differential privacy is, if you're a B2B business, how do you aggregate data across your customer base without violating your data rights contracts and without making your customers angry that you've used their data to help their competitors. Great. You know, we do have some companies that have a large SaaS solution and they do have multi-tenancy so that all of the different company data, it has been already been aggregated. But we also have a set of companies that by contract are required to keep each of their data sets for each of their companies separate. Yeah. And they can't get the value from that unless they do find a way to anonymize and aggregate the data and, and deliver the most value to their customers. And, and your point is, there's a way to do this, and it's different than anonymization, and, and that is where we get to differential privacy. So first of all, I would say many companies, I'd say more than like 50% of the companies that I've talked to have this issue that even though they may have varying degrees of freedom to, to use the data that they collect, almost all, all of them hesitate to aggregate data across customers because either there is some doubt whether the contract allows that, or it's just not clear if the customers will find that acceptable, even if the contract itself doesn't prohibit it. And so there is this concept that's been around for a while of anonymization of data which typically refers to removing 
personally identifiable information from a data set and calling it a day. This doesn't really work. It doesn't actually protect the data that you want to be protected. And moreover, you know, if you collect some additional information from public sources, you actually often can recover even that personally identifiable information and completely de-anonymize the data set. I'm glad you brought up de-anonymizing of data. I was surprised when I read that 87% of the U.S. population can be uniquely identified if someone has a five-digit zip code, a gender, and the date of birth. And here I was protecting my social security number. But this is me worrying about my data. I need you to help me understand this from a company's perspective. There's two misalignments here between the notion of anonymization and the issue of data rights. One is that the, this, the traditional approach simply doesn't work. You can actually de-anonymize data. And the other, which is maybe even more important, is that the, the way that's typically talked about in, you know, in, in compliance language and, and in compliance frameworks about anonymization is that it's a way to protect a specific person's record from being identified and being traced back to that person. What, what I'm talking about is really protecting all the data, not just the fact that John bought a certain type of shirt can be traced back to John, but it's protecting the fact that John bought a certain type of shirt, the fact that somebody bought that type of shirt, and when that person bought it, how much they paid for it. All that information needs to be protected and it's, you know, traditional anonymization techniques where you just remove certain fields from the data don't help you there. And then these, the purchase history then. So knowing an a, a assortment or an aggregation of different people made different types of shirt purchases over a period of time is data that would be input into a machine learning model to yield some type of propensity for the exactly. next buyer. So you want the value out of that data to come out of the model. But at the same time, you want to make sure you're protecting more than just the fact that John bought the shirt. You're trying to protect all of the individual pieces of data and let the results speak for themselves. Yeah. So this is more than just about protecting an individual record and the individual pieces of that record. It's not just about what John Pryor bought. It's also about protecting what the employees at Georgian Partners bought, and really protecting various levels of aggregation that are not really needed to, to answer the question that you need, which may be, let's say, what is the macro level behavior of buyers across all growth stage equity funds? If that's your question, you don't need to reveal what people at Georgian Partners buy. You just need to extract that insight and aggregate it along with other data that you have so that you can answer the, that question in your product. So you want to hide as much data as possible while still getting to your objective, which is, let's say in this example, your objective is to pre predict buying behavior of employees of, of growth stage equity funds. What you're trying to do is optimize the high level of privacy against the minimal loss of accuracy. Is, is that where you're going here now? That's right. It's, it's, it, think about it as two conflicting objectives. One is, you know, you want to hide as much of the data as possible because, you know, if you're building a model on that data, potentially that model reveal part of the data to 
other customers who may be competitors, mutually competitive, and they don't want to sh- reveal their data to their competitors, obviously. Right? So, so there's two objectives here. How do I use the, the useful parts of the data? And how do I hide everything else, given that the meaning of useful parts here is some complex statistical notion rather than a particular field or value within the data? And so that's where differential privacy helps us. We, we, we'll save for a future podcast how we hide that and some of the technologies and techniques behind that. We'll stay pretty high level here. Um, but I do want to talk about what it means for companies to differentiate themselves. So I think it's important for you to kind of level set us a bit and talk to me the very first time I heard and maybe everybody else heard about differential privacy, although I'm sure it had been in the research world for a long time, was when Apple made their announcement. Can you just kind of give me a summary of, of what Apple said and then we'll talk a little more about what that really means. Apple announced in their last year's April event that they will be using differential privacy in iOS 10 to build AI that protects your privacy. And obviously, at the, you know, at the Apple event, it's all high level. They don't go into details of what that means and what the, exactly they'll be doing. Uh, and Apple is generally pretty secretive about how they build their technology. But one thing that surprised, I would say, a lot of the research community and and got a lot of attention and, and, you know, blog posts that followed that was Apple dedicating screen time from their main event in April to talk about a, a supposedly academic concept like differential privacy. And so I think what Apple did there is they, they, they accomplished two things. One is they established themselves as being thought leaders in privacy and security. No one before that has dared to pull out an academic term like differential privacy and use it in such a high profile event. And the other thing that they've accomplished is that suddenly there's all these other companies talking about differential privacy and how they've been doing that and that they're planning to do that. And the guarantees that you get from differential privacy as well. So the idea that Apple, what Apple is really trying to accomplish is get over this status quo concept of anonymization that everybody says they're doing and yet everybody knows that nobody's really anonymizing anything and say, okay, we're going to really solve this. We want to build the best products with the best AI and the best predictive capabilities for our customers. And we're going to do it in a way that preserves your privacy. And this is aligned with their general stance on security that iPhone, the iPhone is the most secure phone and it's, you know, it's, has the highest bug bounty um, kind of values, and it's the hardest one to hack. And I, I remember in one of our earliest podcasts, we talked about the fact that an iPhone, uh, full iPhone exploit goes for around $1.5 million on the black market. So that's, that's the level of security that people assign to Apple. And Apple wanted to continue that and expand it into their AI offerings on iPhone. Apple's collecting lots of data on people and they're taking this level of protection beyond the data. So where, where, are, where is this protection? This protection is sitting in the models. Tell me where this is sitting and kind of remind us again based on the, your earlier definition. My, my iPhone knows very well how my wife and I talk to each other. And like, it knows our conversational style and it, it like, predicts the next word pretty well. Uh, so you can, you can imagine Apple eventually can automate my text messages to, to 
to my wife. And so the question is, how do they, how do they do that? I mean, if they, if they uploaded all of our text message history to, to Apple to analyze, and all they told me is we're removing your names from it, well, that doesn't really help me. I mean, the messages themselves contain so much information that it would be very easy to identify both me and, and my wife on those text messages and learn a lot about our, our personal life, right? So, so, what, so what can Apple do to make this possible? At the same time, you know, the functionality is great. If you can save time typing on your phone, it, it's very convenient. So what can Apple do to achieve that? So here, as you mentioned earlier, we're not talking about protecting the data. We're talking about protecting the models, the predictive models. And specifically, I don't know what Apple does, um, but you know, the way I would imagine this working in the case of specifically the iOS keyboard is that the phone creates a, a model based on your typing history on your phone, so your text message history is not uploaded back to Apple. And then that model is transformed into a differentially private model, which we now have a guarantee that cannot be reverse engineered back into the text messages. So it, you, once that model has been transformed, you can no longer recover any of the original texts. And now it's safe to transmit it back to Apple and aggregate it with all the other iPhone users' text messaging models to build this massive predictive tool that for everyone that's using an iPhone can tell what should be the next word that they're typing. So the conversation you have with your wife obviously is aggregated. There's also local information that's very specific to you two. If you are the only two people speaking in a certain way, the model's never going to do, if I'm having a conversation with my wife, it's not going to spit out the type of phrasing that you might use if it's just one of you. If there's hundreds of us then talking in the same way, it'll help us predict that way. How much is it personal versus aggregated in terms of these models? No, that's exactly, you're exactly getting to the right point here. You're, the objective is to build a model that can predict how people talk in general and then things that are personal to you should be uh, excluded from that model, right? And so how do we guarantee that? That's where differential privacy comes in. It extracts these macro-level patterns. And I, I shouldn't say it extracts because it's not differential privacy that extracts. The models that you train extract these macro-level patterns from the messages that help Apple predict how people that use iPhone talk to each other. And where differential privacy comes in is, okay, how do we eliminate from that all the private and personal level styles, specific messages, specific information that is both not useful for building these macro level predictions and is actually private and so should be kept private. Interesting, and I should note here, uh, and you built the Georgian Partners security guidelines, uh, the level of comfort you have with Apple doing this differential privacy around the keyboard and predictions, actually had you build a policy would not let us th use third-party keyboards because you don't necessarily know and trust those algorithms. No one's talked about it. So Apple, by marketing themselves, 
with differential privacy has actually differentiated themselves and to some degree, at least in the case of your security guidelines for the company, has locked out other vendors from potentially participating with us. That's right. So it's a real differentiator for them. And, you know, it's, it's differentiating in many ways. I mean, it's not just that they're able to kind of sway the masses with, um, with their privacy arguments. It's that they make sure that anyone who cares about privacy will be using an iPhone and will be advocating for it both at their workplace and with their friends. And, and so combined with the fact that they have a pretty good user experience, it's a pretty powerful way to, to make sure that people keep using the iPhone keyboard and the iPhone product itself and just stay within that ecosystem. I think I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you to talk about at least one more company. So uh, tell me about Google. For Google, what we know publicly is that they've actually built differential privacy based um, statistical models a few years back. They just never made a big deal out of it like Apple has. And those models are built into the Chrome browser. So when you use Chrome, there's certain information that it, it gets collected and aggregated in a differentially private way to protect your privacy. And the exact reasons for that are, you know, I don't think Google discloses uh, publicly, but I mean, it's clearly intended to avoid having Google store information that it doesn't want to have about you. Now, you just mentioned storing information, and, and I'm trying to make sure I keep our listeners understanding the distinction between the data and the models. So yeah. tell me, you say you stored it in a differentially private way. Can you just talk a little more about what you mean here? I'm, just, I'm sort of yeah. staying at the definitional level here. Yeah, so think of differential privacy is this, as this great filter that consumes either a machine learning model or a response to a query that you make to a database and produces something that is protecting the privacy of the data underneath. And so in the case of Chrome, let's say, you can imagine of all sorts of information that Google could be collecting about you as you use the browser. And some of that information may get combined into a statistical model, which will then get transformed into a differentially private model and uploaded to Google. And so what, what gets accomplished is that the data never leaves your, your browser. You never upload your data to the cloud. What happens is that there's certain statistics and certain aggregate level information that Google can use that is being uploaded and anonymized through differential privacy before it's stored by Google. That brings us to the end of Differential Privacy 101. There's more to come as we get into some of the nuts and bolts of this and its relevance to all companies doing AI, not just the big ones. As you heard, this is an important topic for the internals of your business, and no pun intended, it could differentiate you in the marketplace as well. Thanks for listening. For the Impact Podcast, I'm John Pryle.